Welcome to Call It Like I See It, presented by Disruption Now. I'm James Keyes, and on this episode of Call It Like I See It, we would like to continue our culture series and go into part two of our discussion on the best-selling book, Confessions of an Economic Hitman by John Perkins. Joining me today is the man who is also able to operate in the shadows while making moves in plain sight, Tunde Ogonlana. Tunde, I know you don't use this alias anymore, but for old time's sake, can I call you Verbal Kent? Um, yes. <laughs> I wasn't ready for that one. <laughs> All right, well, I, I will I, say, I like whatever it, I say, I will say Kaiser Sose, whatever yeah. I say. <laughs> I don't want to say too much. So, <laughs> now we're recording this in April of 2020, and like I said, we're continuing our culture series. Uh, we broke this discussion into two parts, uh, our discussion on the best-selling book, Confessions of an Economic Hitman. It was published in 2004, and it's presented in an autobiographical form, taking us through the life of the author, John Perkins. Perkins critically discusses the economic system he terms as a corporatocracy and illustrates how the system has been used to create a global empire run by U.S. power brokers and corporate interests. He also introduces us to the concept of what he terms as an economic hitman. He has corporate professionals who play a large role in expanding the influence of monetary interests in various developing countries, particularly developing countries around the world, um, to the benefit of what he calls to be the corporatocracy, you know, those the money and interests. So we released part one of this discussion uh, a few weeks ago, and in that we discussed our reaction to, to more specific stories and, and, and anecdotes and discussions and, and, and things that were introduced in the book. Uh, we wanted to pick this up back up today and, and discuss some of the bigger picture issues as far as how what we see there, what, what the, the concepts, the systems that are in the book, how they interact with our view of ourselves, how they interact with what our republic is supposed to stand for here in America. And so we wanted to get into some of those you know, in a little more detail. Uh, first, we, wanted to, we, we left off talking about uh, Saudi Arabia and then what is termed as the Saudi Arabian money laundering affair and the efforts... Uh, by the, the the corporate interests, the moneyed interests, you know, and in, in and around the United States that are essentially that are controlled by the United States, the the system that was set up with Saudi Arabia to make sure that oil was made available to the U.S. on an ongoing basis in exchange for money being paid to our contractors, U.S. contractors, and so forth to build Saudi Arabia, build it up, modernize it, and all, but also for the U.S. to maintain the House of Saud in control of Saudi Arabia. Um, and Tunde got into some discussion on petrodollars and how that's so influential in our economy. Uh, so Tunde, I know you wanted to, to, to pick up uh, or, or hit on another couple of topics there. So uh, what do you want to add on that? Yeah, just the, um, um, and, and welcome everybody for part two, <laughs> first of all. Thank you, James. Um, uh, it, it was interesting because we got into the whole back and forth, not back and forth, but the whole um, um, explanation as to I guess what what caused the oil embargo in terms of the OPEC countries um, uh, not liking the United States support of Israel in the early seventies, blah blah blah, you know all that kind of stuff in, in history, um, and the disruption that the supply shock um, caused uh, to the United States economy. I mean, basically anybody, especially you and I, were born at the tail end of that decade. But you know, you ask our parents and, and that generation. Um, the 70s was a very difficult um, economic period of time for this country with inflation and all that. A lot of it caused by uh, supply shocks of oil. So with this deal 
with the Saudis uh, that we discussed in, in, in great detail in, in part one, which I won't go over here. One of the things that did stick out to me, though, was what that did was that agreement. Again, that's why some of these things that you find in this book are fascinating because they have good and bad results. Some of the bad results I know that um, or unintended consequences, I would say, were things like uh, what you described uh, last time, like, you know, by putting U.S. military bases in Saudi Arabia, you know, culturally, some of the people there felt that it violated their holy land. Um, you had, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the promotion of the Wahhabism uh, sect of Islam now spreading because of the prominence that Saudi Arabia could play globally now. Um, so on and so forth. So, but one of the positive things that I think made me realize that happened domestically for us is we never had a supply shock again uh, with oil. And Jimmy, I'm going to do a real big mental stretch here, so be ready. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the first thing that it reminded me of was in searching for alien life, when you have these, these telescopes like Kepler and Hubble, Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that has been learned that, that we have benefited from is the, um, the consistency that, that our sun uh, has given our planet in terms of, and the, the, the rotation of axis which the Earth is on, which gives us consistent um, uh, weather. Yeah. And with consistent weather allows for complex life to evolve over time because you don't have, you know, a hurricane happening one day and then a desert the next day. Yeah. Um, and so it's kind of a calm environment allows for growth is yeah. where I'm getting at. And that's what I thought of, which is. I think that's a good these, analogy. Yeah, without these. Analogy. Thank you, sir. Yeah. Uh, you know, I didn't know if I'd be doing the mental gymnastics here, but. Um, <laughs> But the, um, but the idea of a calmer economic backdrop when it comes to commodity prices, let's go there, mm -hmm. and the ability to have now long-term, to be able to forecast and have certainty long-term for the price of that commodity, especially when the commodity is the number one commodity used in growth for the economy at the time, which was oil. Um, I think, like, that's what I started realizing, you know, kind of getting into the book again here, now that my mind's a little more immature than it was 15 years ago when I first read it, was just saying to myself, wow, you know, the, the, one of the benefits of this, which I'm sure some would not like to acknowledge, is that, you know, this thing that happened in the mid-70s with Saudi Arabia and the United States, you can draw an immediate correlation to the bull market of the 1980s. Uh, that bull market had other factors that that helped it along the way. You know, the, the advent of technology and and the spreading of it, so on and so forth. But but well, I'd say, say you're taking even a more narrow view than you need to. I mean, just the okay. over, the, just the growth, the ex, the explosive growth over the last forty years. I mean, and I think you can acknowledge that. Like, you don't have to be myopic about this. Like the 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 reason why, in large part the Saudi Arabian affair was set up the way it was and the, the impetus for it was the oil embargo from OPEC and it was to prevent that from happening again. And it did prevent it from happening again and there were a lot of benefits reaped from that, particularly if you're looking at it just from the standpoint of growth. Like one of the things Perkins pushes back on in general is the idea that all growth is good. There is a mentality out there um, that's pretty pervasive that all growth is good. Um, and that's, that, I think that's short-sighted. Perkins gives examples, and I, I've seen these examples also, like you will get economic growth in, from a GDP standpoint from a, a hurricane coming in leveling everything because you got to rebuild it. 
but that's not moving you forward. That's just rebuilding what it was. But you know what? That's growth because without that hurricane knocking down that building, you wouldn't have had to spend the money to build it again. And so all growth, if you push back or if you buy, excuse me, that all growth is good for society, then unequivocally, the, the, it, this was a success. This was a success because yeah. it set the stage for so much growth. The other, I actually wanted to mention another thing with this um, that I think, and he, he touches on this in the book several times, just in, and briefly just to go back, the economic hitmen, what they do, it, it, as, as Perkins says, is they go in to a developing nation and they convince the leadership there to borrow money from international institutions controlled by, primarily controlled by the U.S., and use the money they're borrowing to pay U.S.-based contractors to develop things in their country. Um, and now, essentially, toward to move them towards more a modern system, you know, more electrical or better electrical grid, better uh, sanitation, better things like that. But the goal is to get them to borrow more money than they need and, and to, to inflate what their needs will be and how much growth they'll get out of it. And then they're beholden to you once they default on the loans. Like that was part of the way Perkins set that up. But he said that they, that approach was an evolution and, and it's supposed to avoid the approach of what he called the jackals coming in who come in and start causing regime change, you know, inciting coups, which we've also seen around the world or, uh, or, or assassinating leaders that wouldn't play ball or the last resort being an invasion, you know, military, you know, the military coming in. So he's saying that he could like, while he didn't endorse it per se, he's saying that that is that's an alternative to these more blunt instrument approaches of trying to exert influence throughout the globe. And to, to illustrate that, the system that was set up in Saudi Arabia, where this, this quid pro quo, hey, we'll keep you in power, we'll empower you and your nation, as long as you use the money that you're getting from this oil to pay us to, to, to build up your country. Um, they tried to do the same deal with Iraq, and they tried to set up the same deal with Iran. Those, di those deals didn't work out. And in those countries, you saw the result where like Saddam Hussein wouldn't play ball. And, you know, you saw and in fact, you know, thumbed his nose at the idea and you end up in wars in those scenarios. They weren't able to change the regime. Same thing with Iran. Iran, it, it didn't work out the way they were trying to do. And, and ultimately, these countries become adversarial. You know, Iran has been adversarial to us, you know, since then, basically Iraq, we ended up going in and taking over. And so. Again, it, it, you don't look at this, or it's, I don't think it's helpful to look at this and say all bad, all good. I do think it's good, though, again, to understand the game that's being played so you can try to figure out better ways to make it work, you know, in a way that I would say is more consistent with your own values, you know, whatever those would be, you know, or, or if, you, if, greed, if you're all about greed, then, hey, you look at that and say, hey, it looks good to me. But, you know, from my standpoint, I'm not all about greed. And so I, but I need to understand what's going on and why it's going on and the problems that are being tried or, or that are, they're trying to solve, because you can't just stop doing this without still trying to address the same issues that they were trying to address with this system. So. And, and that leads in, I mean, what I really wanted to ask you here, um, one of the, the themes that Perkins revisits over and over again, Perkins um, references the Revolutionary War and, and figures in the Revolutionary War and, and draws the analogy of how these, the, the figures in the Revolutionary War, you know, the Jeffersons of the world, Thomas Paine's, they were revolting against a global empire, global primarily economic empire that was exerting influence in nations and trying to control the flow of money so that they could always benefit, you know, from, from these nations, the U S being one of them. And that was part of the revolt. Um, and so, and he draws a contrast to that and say, right now, this is us, you know, we are the British empire in the 1770s in terms of how we exert our financial influence, particularly in other countries to make sure whatever they're doing benefits us. And he openly wondered whether or not 
we can have our like the, the ideals of our republic can exist alongside of this American empire, this U.S. empire that's based on economic activity. Tunde, what do you think about that? Can, can our empire, you know, our American empire, this you know, our corporate empire, the the, the economic empire that, that has been set up, where all things, all roads from a monetary standpoint lead to the United States, can that exist at the same time with the ideals of our republic in practice, not just in people's minds, but actually being practiced? Can we be about freedom? Can we be about opportunity, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Can we be about inalienable rights? Inalienable rights is not rights given to you by the government. Those are rights given to you in doubt, as they say, endowed on you by your creator, you know, that human beings have. You know, and then they all they, they allow themselves to be governed by a government, but the rights they have are are in that's not a citizen thing. You don't need to be a citizen to have the in, in to have inalienable rights. Can we have both? Um <laughs> tough question. <laughs> I say I say yes, it's funny because it's like a yes and no, right? I mean, I think you're right. There there's because I, look, this speaks to the complexity of human beings. I mean, let's get really forward with it. Some people can live with two running conversations in their head at once, uh, walk and chew gum at the same time in that way. Other people are more absolutist and things are black and white without the grays. So I think that, you know, you, to answer that question probably comes down, you know, the, the, the person answering it may find that answer whether they come down on one side or another. Um, but it, there's a lot to unpack there because... You can ask that question the way you asked it, and while you're asking, it makes me think of, well, you know, we had this country and this beautiful system of Bill of Rights and a constitution set up under a time when, you know, there was a large population of people here that were slaves, right? So, you know, I, I know ding, that that's ding, a, ding, ding. Yeah, I know yeah. that's an argument that, you know, either someone right now listening to this is rolling their eyes or they're, or they're saying, yeah, he's right. Um, but well, no, but the, the point, the day, regardless of how you take that, let me just yeah. add this. I'm going to let you finish. But it, even then, they weren't practicing it where they weren't building what they were building from an economic standpoint on the backs of some people. They were. Like, right now, we're just not doing the slaves here. You know, like, but we are still building our, pros our economic prosperity on the backs of other people. And so... It's a good parallel to show that, well, even though they talked about it then, they were they were doing some pretty, you know, crazy stuff for, for economic reasons primarily then. Yep. Yeah, no, you're right. And I think, but that's, again, where knowing these kind of things, it, it, it all kind of makes sense in the end, right? It's, it's not even because, let's go back to the idea of even slavery and that type of colonial dominance. And not just slavery itself, but the kind of, British, Spanish, Portuguese, you know, the kind of the European colonialism between, let's say, the year 1492 and, you know, the 1800s. In, in, and we've talked about this on other shows, that in order then to justify the economic moves being made, you know, at the end of the day, people are, you know, by majority, somewhat empathetic and, and sympathetic to the plight of others, if given an honest lens. So one way to promote imperialism and conquest that benefits a few, right? Like the kings, kings and queens of England, for example, mm -hmm. like King mm -hmm. George, how you allude to with, with our revolution here in the United States, um, you must somehow dehumanize those who are being exploited Correct. for those riches. So back then we saw the dehumanization maybe in the form of, because it was a lot easier to build contrast back then. 
Um, you know, to say that a bunch of people in, in tribal communities in West Africa, well, they weren't, they weren't the same as us in the civilized, you know, European and, and, and American uh, type of areas. So we're going to civilize them. And that was the narrative used until the 20th century. You know, let's say pre-World War II even, you know, you go to, um, um, and even post-World War II based on the book, going into um, the Amazon rainforest in the 60s. And, and bringing, you know, quote unquote, bringing Christianity and civilization to these people. Well, again, it doesn't mean that everybody, every missionary was some CIA, you know, agent. Mm-hmm. A lo- most of those missionaries, most of the people doing those things were genuine and honestly believed in what they were doing. But the, those, those avenues could be exploited by the moneyed interest, per se, through their agencies in the government to continue promoting an empirical kind of um, situation globally. And so I think that's what we're getting at is at one point it was much more overt, you know, these type of things, this this colonial domination. and, and, And in modern times, it's a little more subtle. And then going back to the comparison with our specifically now with kind of the, the British and the American and our revolution and King George and our founding fathers. I mean, yeah, one of the things in reading the book in that period uh, of time, it reminded me that one man's trash is another man's treasure. One man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. And I think that's what we saw there, which, and and he may alluded to in the book actually about British pirates, um, that basically the whole kind of concept of, of, of British pirates was not because they were trying to just be pirates in the way that I guess we understand pirates, you know, when we think of Blackbeard or... It wasn't indiscriminate. Correct. Like, what's our boy Johnny Depp, that, that character he's played yeah, in those yeah, yeah. yeah. movies? I can't even remember. But, um, but um, Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah. Yeah, but, um, but the idea that they were fighting the Spanish and they were kind of looking at the Spanish and the Spanish conquests and basically looking at the Spanish... Um, dominance and the Spanish colonialism and the Spanish version of capitalism as actually a real threat to England yeah. as, a, like, as a country. And so the idea of pirates were kind of like similar, the way I took it was similar to like an insurgent in Iraq or, or, or one of these type, like somebody well, it was, was saying- Like, like one that was, was promoted by the state basically, like, hey, we, we can't declare war on them, but we Correct. want you guys to go attack those ships, steal the gold and so forth. Correct. Like, yeah, these guys it's, have been it's knighted. It's an insurgency. It's guerrilla, yeah, it's it's guerrilla, it's guerrilla, guerrilla tactics, warfare. Yeah. And those guys were spent years in prisons, you know, and all that when they were caught by the Spanish. And it was kind of the same thing, like, like you're saying, like a, a one country that knew it couldn't go head to head with the other country because of just the military might was not there. That and the, and the wealth wasn't there to, to really beat them militarily that said, hey, we got to do this underhanded stuff. We got to be basically be terrorists on the high yeah. seas. Yeah. And, and, and that's what I started thinking. Well, it is no different than, um, you know, Russia attacking our election, for example. You know, Russia knows it can't go toe to toe to us in a hot war militarily. So why not just do something underhanded? And, and again, it goes back to the complexity of humans. This, this is just how we are. And, and, and so that's where, when you extrapolate it out that far, um, you know, I do see some similarities with our founding of this country and the desire to throw off the yoke of King George and the exploitation of the British Empire um, to a lot of things that we just see today with countries trying to throw off our yoke. 
Yeah, that's well, what I mean, I mean like, like we it's threw not off personal. The, it's just yeah. <laughs> no, hundred percent. We threw off the yoke of Great Britain and the British Empire so that we could put the yoke on, so we could benefit from putting the yoke on other people. As right. long as, and, we, and, as long as but, they had but, their but yoke the on us. Is, well, well, you saying that makes me maybe help me answer the initial question, which was, you know, our ideals and and does it, you know, do our ideals as Americans crash up against the rocks of these realities? And again, that's where, I mean, if you look at it from how we're discussing it, I guess the answer is yeah, in a certain way. But I think that's where the importance of things like culture and propaganda and all that come into play with every society, because we don't think of ourselves that way as much as we've just pointed out how much we're the same as every other empire. And, no, and, that, and that's a big else. part of it, actually, because yeah. as you noted, like the missionary that goes down to the Amazon or even the, the quote-unquote economic hitman, Perkins even noticed this. A lot of times, these guys don't look at themselves as going to exploit these countries. Like, if you genuinely believe that our system or our religion or our anything is the best one and the one that will bring people happiness, you spreading that to people is not a hostile act. It's just that if, if that can be exploited. You know, like if we understand it better than the people we're teaching it to or that we're giving it to, then we can set it up in a way. And actually, the, my answer to the question is it's not inherent, per se, that our values will crash against these, these realities of trying to win economically, basically. It's just if you want to set up the system so you always win. Like, and that's really what it comes down to. And we see this so much, um, whether you notice it or not is, an, is another thing. But we see it so much where people that the, the winners in our society oftentimes try to adjust the rules once they get to the top so that they keep winning, so that they remove their chance of losing. If you're, if you're good setting up a, a, merito- a true meritocracy where sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, then I think you can actually keep some of the values we profess to have, but you just got to understand that some, somebody else might come up with something better and beat you with it. it it's, it's akin to, like, if, if you go to a sports analogy, if you let the quarterback of a football team set all the rules of the game, then whatever that quarterback is good at, they're going to make it, those are legal things to do. And whatever that quarterback is not good at, they're going to make it not you know, illegal to do the stuff that he's not good at. Like, hey, I can run really well. I can throw the ball really far. So I'm going to make it illegal to throw short passes because I'm not good at that. So I like, so if you always are trying to set the system up to play into your strengths and to to make things that you're not good at, not not things that aren't kosher to do, then you set yourself up to win. But that's where you get into the exploitation. That's where you get into saying, okay, well, I'm going to go, instead of coming into these countries and I'm going to lend you a reasonable amount of money with an eye on, I want you to make sure you can repay this in a reasonable amount of time while also bringing up the standard of living of your people. If you go in like that, then when that loan is repaid, they may not come back to you for more money. Or they may not, when you ask them, hey, I need you to, 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 to do this or do that for my geopolitical purposes, they may say, blow, you know, go pound sand. We're not going to do that. And so you lose the control that you wanted to have. You lose having them on the line that you wanted to have. But you made that initial round of money. And so that's really what it is, is we're trying to set it up so we never lose. And so we have to be exploitative. Um, but I don't think it's inherent in the system. And that's kind of, you know, where where look, where I come down in that. And that, that, that it's not inherent, but it is in practice, it's hard to avoid. Yeah. So, all right. So along those lines, and, and, and I want to ask this in a more specific way now, because um, I, I kind of addressed this, but it's a little a slightly different question. In terms of economic imperialism, the way we do things now, um, in terms of, going in, loaning money. I want to get your comment on that. Like, is that inherently unfair or simply being exploited? Like, 
Is there is could you conceivably set up a system that you could bring up the standard of living in these countries um, without setting them up either for them to exploit the, the people in power in those countries to exploit the, the lower end people or for the people in our country to exploit everyone? Like, is it possible really to do that or is that a pipe dream? And I'm saying from a practical standpoint, understanding people. Um, yes, I think it's probably possible to do it. Um, will we see the same enjoyed um, low costs, for example, of consumer goods and all that? Maybe not. Um, but is it possible? Yeah, because someone's making the decision uh, to do this stuff and to do it the certain way. I'm sure it can be tweaked. And I think what, as you're saying it, it makes me realize that, again, like we talked about, and I think he alluded to this in the book, that what we're doing really is, I don't, I don't believe in this whole, you know, the, the, the risk of a new world order and this one world government and all that, because you need arbitrage and you need um you need volatility for money to be made. Um, that's why you know wealth, wealth, and capitalism doesn't like communism because communism doesn't allow for the frictions and the and the and the winners and losers and and the and and the ups and downs that one sees in the capital side or sorry capitalism. Um, so what 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 I'm saying is that by doing it this way and allowing the leaders of these third world countries to exploit their own people for the benefit of um, U.S. consumerism and, and, and I would say, let's call it the Western world's consumerism. Let's not just pick on the U.S., but a lot of other countries benefit from this as well. Um, and it's kind of, and one thing in rehashing the book now, you realize that this is just a continued extension of the Western European colonialism. Um, yeah. of, the, of the kind of middle of the, of the millennium, you know, from kind of the 1500s on. And it's just taken a it'd new been form. Re-centered. It was recentered. Yeah, and it, yeah, it was recentered to the United States. That's one thing, and it's recentered into a new form of of truly being debt driven and not just conflict and, and kind of bullets and, and cannons and all that. So, uh, but one of the the offshoots that's where I was getting at is that it's caused a lowering of wages and lowering of the standard of living back into the mother countries that that promoted this. And I think yeah. that's where the world, and that was the, whether it was, I don't think this was an intended consequence, but because I think, had you asked leadership in the United States, let's say in the 70s or the 60s, um, does it make sense to atrophy and hollow out your lower class so that they basically- And middle class. And middle yeah, class. so that you end up getting a revolt at some point against your status. I mean, most people would probably say, yeah, that's not the way, but these things- not one person decided this. These things happen over decades and various generations. So, um, and I think that some of those that even created some of these things we're talking about may um, uh, may be turning in their grave as they see how they have been playing out the last few decades, um, and may have may, may may not have wanted some of these or may not have seen some of these unintended consequences. Really? Um, so I think that um, the I think that there was a mindset in the United States in the 60s and 70s that the, the common man had too much power. Um, I think that there was a concerted effort uh, going into the 80s to reduce I mean this is what you see with the unions, you know, like this is there was an effort to reduce the power of the common man relative to the the the, the wealth class, um, and I think that they would be very proud of that. And part of the, the way that was done, if you if you follow the long arc, 
Um, the New Deal empowered workers and pu- the, the members of the public more than ever before in history, which I tie to the effectiveness of the civil rights movement. And I thought, like civil rights, civil rights movement wasn't the first time that minorities tried to get a fair shake, but society was more receptive to it when the rank and file people were doing better in their lives, when they were more secure in their, their incomes and their lives and so forth. And I was an offshoot of that. But I think that there was a concerted effort when, you know, like the it's you most of human history. The few have controlled the many. The many did not play a, a significant role in how their lives turned out. And I think there was a concerted effort to roll that back because New Deal flipped that on its head. And so and, and to answer the question, I, I'd say in the long run, I do think that our the, the current economic imperialism is what's going to happen. Like in that, as you, as you pointed out, if you were going to take this arc back 500 years, what's going on now isn't much different than what was going on that whole time. Somebody's getting, you know, like the, there is the, 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 somebody's the mark. Well, the mo- many people are the mark and there are a few people that are benefiting from it. If you go back even further than that, if you look at Roman society or various empires in China or, you know, like whatever, this seems like this is what happens. You know, like this is how we kind of organize ourselves um, and so in the long run, I think it's something in our human nature, whether it be short sightedness, whether it would be greed or whatever, that takes that takes us to this, you know, and, and, and those that exploit it. Like in the short run, I think you can have areas and blips where there can be a more fair minded application of these principles. So because in, in principle, I think these principles in terms of competition, in terms of free enterprise can be implemented in a way that helps a lot of people. But and so in the short run, when you have people in charge that have those interests in mind, then you can implement it in that way. But I think those kinds of people are few and far between, basically. Like the vast majority of the people that have the motivation, the talent, and the inclination to make things happen don't seem to be motivated by altruistic reasons and by empowering people across the board. Just looking back throughout history, like the, the most of the majority, it may be eight to eight, you know, or four to five, you know, of, of the people. If you have five people that have the talent, the motivation, you know, everything like that, that are that can really move society, it seems like four of them, you know, usually are not doing it. They're doing it for their own enrichment, you know, for whatever reason, you know. Like, and so short run, I think you can have pockets of time where where you have a leadership set up in a way that brings that looks to bring everybody up using this exact same type of system but normally i think the the, the long run it's going to be dominated by people who don't yeah no i think um and it all speaks back to even things we said right even on the first uh, uh show uh or part one of this uh is you know, it's not about some some big grand conspiracy where just a few people in the smoke filled room are making all these decisions. These these things happen really from millions of us, uh, thousands to millions of people that work in these various industries and all that, just doing things out of our own self interest. I mean, I gave yeah. the example on the first uh, part one of you know my role as a wealth manager and learning that one of the stocks that we've concentrated clients in is actually the number one corporate donor of a senator that I really have philosophical disagreements with. And, you know, it's a small example of how I can make a choice and be Mr. Hero and sell that stock and all that, but that's not what I'm going to do. It's a good company and my clients are making money and that's my job. So I I can at least be honest about the fact that I am a cog in this wheel um, and and understand the role that I play in it, um, at least to my knowledge even, right? Because I'm sure there's a lot of things that I'm doing on a daily basis that promote a system that I don't even realize I'm doing. So um, so back to, your, to, to, to the question, I think to answer is, yes, I think this, this system could be handled 
the same system of debt using uh, you know World Bank IMF things like that to 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 issue debt to third world countries without crippling them for the long term could be done in a different way. The difference is, remember, and this is where understanding all this, it, it's funny, you know, we, we, we have these things against, uh, or culturally, we, we, we like to pick a China or Iran, some of these countries. But there's a reason why it's, it's funny that we never go to war with them, but we go to war with an Afghanistan or an Iraq, is because we're too intertwined with them. And, yeah. and and the difference is like let's let's say this let's say because think about it we the IMF and World Bank gave all these loans to China's in the seventies and eighties which allowed them to become what they are today. Um, but suppose we demanded that China didn't have sweatshops and didn't we and and didn't allow our companies to make massive profits by having um, you know workers being paid one cent a day there and and that. They allowed their workers to have unions and to compete, um, and and, and that they had to workers, be stewards. Yeah. Of, they had to be stewards yeah. of the environment. They couldn't just pollute. And, and they allowed they allowed their country to negotiate with our corporations that came in there about things like wages yeah. and retirement and pensions and all that. Again, would that system have helped the broader masses of the earth? Yes. Would I be able to be looking at the flat screen TV on the other side of my office right now where I'm talking to you and having bought that for $400 from Walmart? No. So yeah. so that's the, you know, and that's what I'm saying that we're all part of this and we're all yeah. benefiting or, or not benefiting from being part of this system. And again, that's where, you know, just understanding this stuff helps you take a different view of some of these things that are happening geopolitically. And then... The, the short-term versus long-term, I found that interesting in the book when he talked about Iraq, because I feel like that's, you know, everything he said leading up to the Iraq war and the whole thing about the economic hitman versus the jackals versus the military, you know, um, um, uh, I think it was Van Clausewitz, a German military historian and philosopher in the 1800s, um, had a great saying. It was um, that war is politics by another means. Yeah. And when you really think about it, it's true. What's the purpose of a military? I mean, people say it's to defend and all that, but realistically, usually when you're defending, you're defending from someone else attacking you for probably resources it's, it's, and something it's, else. Yeah. So resolving so, disputes. <laughs> yeah, and and I think what it, what it made me think of was was also the fascinating thing about our country because we have such a short, which I think is a good thing, a short period of of kind of rulership by our president. Let's say four to eight years that things do change. So when you look at something like the Iraq war, and I think it's not only that, it's, it's the decision of the leadership and why those things were decided. But when you look at the Iraq war, you've got the Bush administration who went in there under certain pretenses and had a certain vision for what they wanted to do, um, whether or not that vision was accomplished by 2008, by the end of 08, when the Bush administration was over, is neither here nor there, because then comes in the Obama administration, which was specifically elected in to do something different in Iraq. So then something different was done. And so it's almost like I realized that Iraq's an interesting example, and maybe a Vietnam could be another example, where this economic hitman thing also isn't perfect for obvious reasons, because... When, when things aren't done in a genuine way, right, like, you know, the, the, the use of a lie of weapons of a mass destruction and the use of a distraction um, 
Well, let me rephrase that. Not distraction, but the, but the real thing that happened in 9-11 of us being attacked by Al-Qaeda, who was, you know, out of 19 guys seven t- that, that, that were part of that attack, 17 of them came from one country, Saudi Arabia, which produced this Wahhabism. And we end up in Afghanistan, which is understandable because they had House bin Laden, who was a man- mastermind of the attack. But kind of the, 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 then the dishonest use of that whole situation to, to, to keep Americans in a state of fear to go into Iraq, um, it's not surprising that that project then fell apart. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and, so, and, so, and then when you have a shift in strategy by 2009 with the Obama administration, again, that's where I think this economic hitman stuff has shown be, to be destructive because all we did was go in there, make a big mess, get the rest of the world to kind of start looking at us sideways and get upset with us and then create a bunch of infighting in our own country and waste a bunch of our own money. And that's where I say between the Iraq war and the great financial crisis, you know, 2008 through 2010, I really feel the chickens came home to roost with this strategy. Like well, but see, both, but all the, the money was, was like, but see, if you look at it from the perspective of who was winning, the people who, the same people who benefit from the economic hitman, the stuff described in the economic hitman, were winning with the Iraq war too. Um, I did want to, like, I know uh, we, 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 we're going to close up here pretty soon. So there was a couple points I wanted to make. Um, I also note a similarity with the economic hitman setup and Keynesian economics um, in general, in terms of using debt to, to, to finance for, or use, excuse me, using debt for societal need um, to to either dig yourself out of a hole or to to kind of try to move the set the society up for better situations. The Keynesian economics is touched on in the book actually, and that is where like how we see that in our country more more uh, prominent, most prominently historically would be like in the Great Depression. The government, and you've explained this well on other shows, where the government will borrow money and spend money to stimulate demand in the economy because when when things are crashing everyone hoards their money and the only entity that can start spending money to get things to get the wheels turning again is the government so keynesian economics uses that or, or subscribes to that and really brought that to the forefront well that concept is used by the economic hitman to say hey you borrow this money you you invest in these type of things and that'll stimulate your economy that'll get the ball rolling and things going um, and it's exploited in that way to, to get people to borrow too much money. We've seen it exploited in our country now, whereas over the last 20 or excuse me, 20 to 40 years, we just continue to borrow. We, we never stop borrowing. The, the idea of Keynesian economics is you're supposed to stop borrowing once the ball gets rolling and you have a good economic times like you shouldn't have good what you claim to be good economic times while you're still borrowing money, which was always the fallacy of the Trump economy was he's borrowing a trillion dollars a year while claiming the economy is good. Like if the economy is good, you shouldn't be borrowing. But either way. So the Keynesian economics also seems to be ripe for the same type of exploitation where the money that you, you can mask deficiencies so easily by just borrowing money. You can you can pretend to be something you're not by just borrowing money, which is something that can happen on the consumer standpoint, too. And I think that all of these issues still always come back to the point that the, the problem is, is that the alternatives have, have been submitted. When people talk socialism, when people talk all these different systems, um, they fail to account adequately for human nature. What someone has to do, if you want to come up with a system that can supplant what's happening here, because the systems that's happening, what's going on now is based on self-interest. And the one thing we know about human beings is they are reliably self-interested. 
And so if you want to make a better world, the idea isn't just to get everybody to share stuff. The idea is to create a system that can be based on self-interest, but yet constrain that sufficiently that everyone can eat. That there still can be winners and losers, but losing doesn't mean you lose your house you know, or lose whatever. Florida is, is like that, for example. The whole homestead thing with your house, you, it, no matter how much debt you have, no matter how many creditors you have, you literally can't, they can't come and take your house. You know, you're, the, the house you live in. And so there are areas in society, like that's what bankruptcy is. If you may take a risk and you, you fail, you, you, you don't live with that for the rest of your life. So that stuff is interspersed in our society where we understand the, the, the self-interest part, but we try to make it so it's not that you don't, if you lose, you don't just lose everything. But we also, the flip side of that is we have to make it if you win, that you don't just win forever because you won once. You got to keep competing. You got to keep winning. So that's where I see the deficiency in the alternatives that are presented is that they don't adequately merge self-interest with generating better results for society. Um, so was there anything else you wanted to add? You know, I know we're going to get ready to no, wrap I this think, one up. Um yeah, but therein lies, I think, the human dilemma, right? Just, yeah. We've got 8 billion people in the world. We've got 330 million in this country, and there's various self-interests that are always competing. So, um, and, you know, so and I you think that's why. you can't run from that, though. You can't run from, like. No, I know. And, and that's why I think we're just always going to have this kind of conflicts in humanity because there's always, as much as you might have out of 10 people, nine that are extremely altruistic and believe in utopia and all that, if you got one that's willing to stir the pot in order to get their own way, in a sense. They're going to manipulate two or three of those others to then, you know, you kind of... And then eventually it, it all breaks yeah, down. Yeah, eventually. Well, so, the, so you look well, at you that. Well, you have that. Well, look, you have that. If you want to really go deep societally, you have that. And then you also have the freeloader problem. You have the person who looks to exploit, yeah. then you also have the freeloader problem. Yeah. I'm saying, though, and, that... You can't just say everybody just lose your self-interest. You can't be like, it's not a commune. Like you have to say, okay, everybody's going to have some self-interest. How can we design the system that by pursuing your self-interest, you support an overall well, egalitarian the, system? But it's an interesting point. I think that's why America is such an interesting experiment and one of the best uh, kind of societal experiments we've had in, in human history because it's remember people will give up like I and you're a parent I'm a parent right we'll give up a little bit of our self-interest to know that our kids are going to be better yeah. I think that's one of the dreams of America right like okay you know what I'll take it on the chin and, and a little bit as long as I know my my kids are going to do have a chance to do better at least it think, was till the at least it was until the baby boomers took over yeah well that's <laughs> you know now you gotta go into part three but but um <laughs> No, it's just that um, that that you're right, and and you know maybe that's the only way to get a, a, a large society with all these competing self interests to actually move forward in one direction is is by whether propaganda or real by having people really believe that whatever their station is in the given moment, because remember, a lot of people aren't happy. Period. And so, and, and that can come from various things, interpersonal relationships, it could come by their, their, their brain chemistry, it could come from a lot of things, right? And then we have all these pressures in our society from the commercialization of it, and then you got social media where you're seeing how good everyone else is doing, and so now you're comparing yourself and all that. So it's a lot harder, I think, in today's world to even get this cohesiveness as a society than it would have been just a few decades ago. Um, and that's where I kind of... I just, I just, um, not in a negative way, but I feel sorry for people that don't have this information more so because the world is a lot scarier. 
you know, it's, 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 no, but I mean, it's no, you're right. You're 100 pushed right. into these things that believing that it's, you know, it's that lady with a baby coming over the border, you know, from Guatemala that somehow was my problem. People that, crave that simple her. solutions. Yeah, yeah people crave simple her. solutions. This how is about, complex. How about the, the person that's hiring her? Yeah. You know, the, the, the meatpacking plant that, that has 600 illegal workers when it got raided in Mississippi and somehow that employer is not in jail. Yeah. Right. Like, that's what I'm saying is the system promotes the continued exploitation of these workers, which then does cause American workers to have uh, to compete with them in this country. But the but the energy is not channeled to the to the place, the source, which is the wealthy employer who promotes the campaign of the politician in power, who's telling us that it's the person coming over the border. I mean, it's and again, I'm not advocating for open borders. I understand the need for a sovereign country to have closed or strong border protection. And there's a lot of other things like drugs and crime that can happen. Well, but, but your in point general, is well taken, yeah, that, though. That's why I'm that, saying this, that I'm not somebody that's a person that doesn't understand the need for a secure border. I'm saying that it's unfortunate that the, the, the loudest people who seem to yell this are the ones who are being exploited right now by the wealthiest people in this country. And, and it's sad, but when you read books like this, you begin to understand the nature of all those relationships. And that's kind of why I stopped being so political, because I realized, you know, I'm not going to get in you the mess. You mean so partisan, so partisan. Partisan, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like where it's just I'm not getting in the middle of this it. mess, yeah. yeah. Like, like, I see where this is, how this happens, and it's, I'm not here. And that's why I also don't belittle the people that believe those partisan arguments either, because I understand that, you know, I can't explain to you in five minutes everything that I've absorbed over the last 20 years when it comes to these things. You got you to gotta also want to be open to learning these things. Well, that's well said. And I'll say this, like, so there is something in our nature also that wants to find easy solutions or wants to see a good guy and a bad guy. And then, you know, like have them battle it out and you root for the good guy. Like when we create art, when people do movies or books, there is a bad guy and a good guy. Normally they yeah. don't, they don't, they, movies or, or books that promote the ambiguity aren't as popular as Avengers, you know, so yeah. there is a there is a desire. And so as we continue to move forward, ideally, you know, there can be more understanding of complex, more understanding of how we can move to a better place. And it's not just to blame some some villain, some supervillain. It's some a lot of it is based on the system. And if we want to change that, we have to change it from a big picture standpoint. We have to understand what's going on and then figure out how to adjust not necessarily that it, that there are winners and losers, but that even when there's winners and losers, everybody can still eat. You know, as long as yeah. they, as long as they want to participate and work. You know, if as long as you're willing to work hard, you should be able to 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 to, to win in some even if it's a small way. So but, and, and and let me say this, and this is probably a whole nother show. Um, I think that the idea of equality and and all that is is an ideal that most people believe they want to ascribe to. But I think what, what, what happens is a lot of people don't want, really want to have to compete with other people. And, and that can be said in many different forms. You could say that from large corporations versus their smaller competitors. You could say that between racial groups, all that. So I'm making a, a, a really 30,000 feet blanket statement that everybody acts like they like competition, but no one really does. Including me. I mean, shoot. Particularly on an ongoing basis. Yeah, like, like, like we want to vanquish. Yeah. But that's why I think I said in the, in the in part one, you know, reading this book, like, hey, 
it's a, this is a really interesting way to 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 have world domination. I just felt good that I lived in the country that was doing it because <laughs> I don't like it being done to me. I don't like seeing what China's doing in Africa now and all that because I feel like they're starting to run circles around us. Um, I like when my business is prominent. I don't like if I had a whole bunch of competition coming and you know just just a whole bunch of offices like mine opening up down the street. That wouldn't feel good. Yeah. So I think we all, again, we have to be honest with each other that, you know, if, if we can be honest with ourselves, then to your point, maybe we can start addressing some of these things and learning how to deal with our own emotional states while trying to promote a better world for everyone else. So yeah, man, that's, 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 well my, that's my, that's my mic drop. <laughs> <laughs> well said, well said. Well, no, I mean, and, and we can wrap from there. Uh, you know, like I, I think, it's good that we got to kind of deep dive into some of these uh, deeper concepts that he went into in the book. Um, the the way that he presented his own struggles with what he was doing and the results that he saw, I thought was very informative because also he didn't look to to point fingers. He didn't look to he was like, look, I'm a part of that. And and collectively as a side, if we're going to solve our problems, we got to understand what's going on, and then we got to prioritize what we want. And whether our, our values are going to rule, whether our greed is going to rule, and, and so forth. And that's an ongoing decision. It needs to be made by every person, every day, every generation. Um, so I think we can wrap from there, man. Uh, definitely. definitely appreciate you know joining me to discuss this and, and going back through the book. Um, please check out part one if you haven't already, you know, where we discuss uh, some of the, the more specific stories in the book and our reaction to those. So until next time, I'm James Keys. I'm Tunde Evanlana. All right, thank you very much. Subscribe, rate, review, tell us what you think. All right.